You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. Even though the prices have come down, we still need to be doing more, and we need to be worried about these interplays between oil production and the price of oil and the health of the economy. Geology wins over technology every time. For February 8th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Since about 2007, when U.S. oil and gas drillers figured out how to use horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, or fracking, to produce oil and gas directly from the shale rocks that created the oil and gas we had produced up until then, the U.S. has enjoyed a shale boom that astonished just about everyone, taking the U.S. from a has-been producer that was more than four decades past its previous oil production peak to the top producer in the world of oil and gas and the top exporter of liquefied natural gas, or LNG. While the industry enabled the boom by selling us an absurd story about energy independence that never made any sense, the shale boom did in fact deliver a lot of benefits to the U.S. and to the world, not least being that it gave us over a decade of reprieve from the impending threat of peak oil. But now the bloom is off that rose. To be sure, the U.S. is still the top producer of oil and gas, and we are still enjoying the manifold benefits of that. But the growth days are behind the shale producers now due to numerous challenges, not least being running out of decent prospects where they could drill a new well. The implications of this are as numerous as the benefits of the shale boom, but only a few observers at the leading edge of the industry are beginning to reckon with them. And it's vitally important that we understand them, because of the influence that future prices for and trade in oil will have, not just for the U.S., but for the world, and for the entire project of the energy transition. So today we're privileged to have one of those observers at the leading edge of the industry join us to recount the history of how the U.S. fracked its shales to become the leading oil producer and how a decade of volatile oil prices has changed the character of the oil industry as well as the various ways that we use oil. Derek Brower is a longtime oil journalist who is now the U.S. energy editor for the Financial Times, and he's had a front row seat to the entire story of the shale boom. I've been reading him for about two decades now, and have always found his work to be balanced, thoughtful, and insightful, and so I'm excited to finally have him on the show. We'll review the headwinds the shale industry now faces and why its prospects for additional growth are dim. And we'll consider what the end of the shale boom means for the global oil trade and its geopolitics, for the ongoing efforts to eliminate demand for Russian oil in the West, and for the energy transition as a whole. This is a story that I have waited 15 years to tell, and I'm eager to share it with you. Then in the news segment, we'll tote up the cost of the various subsidy packages European countries proffered last year to secure energy supplies and cushion customers from price spikes. We'll see how heat pump deployment is coming along in Europe. We'll note a rare bit of good news for the French nuclear operator EDF. We'll review an explosive new report about deforestation offsets, and we'll applaud a new adoption of passive house standards. But before we go to the interview... Announcements, announcements, announcements. We'd like to welcome our latest group subscribers. 350.org needs no introduction for those who have followed the climate action for any period of time, but for those who have not, started in 2008 by author Bill McKibben and some friends, it is an activist organization that has worked tirelessly to stop the proliferation of fossil fuels and accelerate the energy transition. 
Roswell Development is a developer of wind and solar projects and energy efficiency retrofits based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And Wisconsin's Citizens Utility Board is a private, member-supported, nonprofit organization that advocates for all kinds of small utility customers to argue for fair, safe, and reliable utility service. We are so pleased to have all of them listening to the show. Welcome. And now, our interview with Derek Brower, recorded January 20th, 2023. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Derek, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you, Chris. Nice to be here. Please be gentle with me. <laughs> of course, of course. We're always nice here. <laughs> I feel like it's about bloody time, actually, since I invited you on the show, because we've been talking about energy and especially oil for, I want to say, what, 15 years, probably? At least. Yeah. I mean, You're already not being very gentle. That's a long time. <laughs> Well, I mean, hey, listen, I got to wear it the same as you, pal. I mean, it had to have been since we were both discussing the peak oil story when oil prices had their historic rise and crash in the 2007-2008 era. Mm -hmm. And we mainly chatted on Twitter, although I've moved over to Mastodon for energy chat since Elon said about destroying Twitter back in November. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I wanted to get you on the show to discuss the many points you made in the excellent piece that you and your colleague Miles McCormick published on January 16th titled, What the End of the U.S. Shale Revolution Would Mean for the World. And I'll just do a quick note on terminology here. The shale boom was enabled by the technology now commonly known as fracking, which was first applied to produce natural gas in the U.S. around 2007, and then to produce crude oil around 2011. Shale gas is also sometimes called tight gas, and within the industry, shale oil is usually referred to as tight oil to distinguish it from oil shale, which is not oil at all, but an oil precursor called kerogen that some thought would be the next oil resource that we would exploit, and I'm not going to get into that at all. But listeners who are <laughs> interested in that history can listen to episode 13. And in the past year or two, some politically-minded observers have started calling shale gas fracked gas and fracked oil, but... No one in the industry calls it that, and neither do I. So today we're going to talk about the oil part of the U.S. shale boom. And since Putin invaded Ukraine almost one year ago, U.S. oil producers have really stepped up and helped replace Russian supplies of oil and gas to Europe, haven't they? They have. They have. And by the way, I'm also very glad we're not talking about Kerogen today. <laughs> but you're right, they have. The U.S. oil and gas producers have been producing more oil, not a lot more oil, because that was the point of my piece, but more oil, and they've been exporting a hell of a lot more oil. And a lot of that has ended up in Europe. A lot of gas as well, but we're not talking about gas today, but a lot of LNG has gone to Europe since then, since the invasion last year. And yeah, they have stepped up in a way. I mean, we're going to get into this a lot, I think, but there are problems and they're doing more. I was going to say they're doing their best. I'm not sure they're doing their best in terms of supply. <laughs> yeah, but they have. This has been a boom time for people who like to make money drilling oil from the ground in West Texas, but not necessarily a boom time in terms of how much oil is being produced. I guess that's the crux of it. Yeah. You know, you led your piece with a little note about the decathlon tanker mm -hmm. bringing American crude into the German port town of Wilhelmshaven last month. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because the U.S. hasn't been a crude oil exporter for very long, at least not to the wider world. And if you compare where it was a decade ago, there was just a trickle going to Canada. And now there's 4 million barrels a day going to the global market. And Europe is in this distressed state because of the energy war that's been happening with Russia. 
And Europe is in desperate need. You know, I was just in Europe before Christmas, actually, and the diesel prices are even higher than they usually are. Mm. There have been diesel shortages. There is a genuine fear, there has been a fear in Europe that there would be just shortages of oil and gas in the continent. And amid those shortages, what we saw was a lot of tankers starting to head from Texas, Corpus Christi, from Houston, out to the global market, but many of them ending up in Europe. And that's helped plug that gap. Of course, they haven't been the Americans sending crude oil tankers to Europe out of the goodness of their heart. <laughs> it's because there was a differential in the price and it made sense, market sense, for that oil to end up there. But it has made a difference, just like the LNG in Europe has made a difference to Europe's gas disposition, the volume of oil that's been coming out of these wells fracked across Texas primarily and elsewhere has made a difference to global supplies, has kept at bay the price shocks that some people feared, especially after Europe imposed this new round of sanctions on Russian seaborne crude oil exports that began in December 5th. And the reason we talked about the decathlon was because that was one of the first vessels from the US that landed bearing oil in Germany, in Europe, after the embargo on Russian seaborne crude oil exports to Europe began. So it was to us, that was quite significant. I think many U.S. casual observers would be surprised to learn that we have not been exporting crude because the industry has been making a lot of noise about our exports for many years now. But we've mainly been exporting refined product, haven't we? Yeah. Things like gasoline and diesel. Yep. Right. All right. Well, let's put a little numerical context on this just so people understand what we're talking about here. Give us some numbers. Like how much oil is the U.S. producing, consuming, and exporting now? Well, the U.S. is producing if we're talking crude oil, about roughly 12 million, give or take 100,000, 200,000 barrels a day here or there, to 12.4 if you listen to the monthly estimates, we read them, 12.1 if you go by the weekly numbers, which are kind of an estimate. So those are all millions of barrels a day. Those are millions of barrels a day. So still a lot. I mean, that's more than anybody else produces, including Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is creeping up. I'm going to put an asterisk right. on that for later, but yes, go ahead. Sure, <laughs> sure. I think I know the asterisk you're putting on it. And more than Russia's been producing. So the US, in conventional terms, given the unconventional resource, is producing a world leading, let's call it 12.1 or so million barrels a day of crude oil. It still consumes more petroleum than that, and so it has to import some petroleum products. It exports some petroleum products, all to do with different grades and so on that the U.S. produces and the kinds of fuels that it consumes and so on. And it's exporting about 4 million barrels a day, again, give or take, depending on the week, 4 million barrels a day of this oil to the global market. And a lot of that, it's difficult to say, depends on the month, a lot of that, let's call it 500 tankers or so have left the U.S. since the February invasion, which is kind of the marker that we use as a place to measure things from for the sake of this piece. About 500 tankers laden with this crude oil have left the U.S. to head to Europe. So the U.S. is, is not quite where it was before the pandemic in terms of production, but it's crept up and it's heading in that direction. Our contention in the piece is that that's not necessarily going to emerge quite the way some optimists about U.S. oil production might hope. Right. Okay. So we're 
producing around 12.1, 12.4, whichever month you want to look at. Mm-hmm. We're consuming around 20 to 21 million barrels a day, plus or minus mm-hmm. half a million barrels a day, depending on the month. And, and other than the sharp COVID drop in 2020, that level of consumption in the U.S., that 20 21 million barrels a day level has been very stable since like 2015. It's neither been growing nor declining in any sustained way, which I think is worth mentioning. And so we're still a long way from being what we might call energy independent. Right, right. I mean, the U.S. hasn't ever been energy independent in any kind of classical sense of what an ordinary person might think right. when they hear that term. right. It's done a great job of producing more of more of the stuff that it consumes, but this is also a global market. Even if the US produced 20 million barrels a day and consumed 20 million barrels a day, the oil market is global. It's a fungible commodity. It can be traded anywhere in the world pretty much, which means the US, just like every other consumer of oil, is subject to the vagaries of the global market for this stuff. So the right. idea that it's been energy independent is something of a misnomer, and it's questionable whether that could ever be achieved anyway. Right. And I think it's probably true that no country on earth does 100% of its own refining of its own crude for all of its own refined product. That alone makes it a global market in the sense that the U.S. exports a lot of refined product that it produces from crudes, some produced domestically, some imported, and so on and so forth. So just the existence of the refining complex, the way it is constructed in the world, means that no one could ever be quote-unquote independent or in the sense of being isolated. Mm -hmm. So now, and I'm just going to quickly finish off that asterisk. I bet you can guess what it was. Is it to do with quality of crudes? Well, yeah, it's it's to do with the fact that I think only about 60% of U.S. oil production is actually crude oil. Yes, this is a rabbit hole, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's one that I spent a lot of time on back in the day when I was an independent energy journalist because the industry, the U.S. domestic industry that was pimping everybody up for this exciting new fracking revolution was making this claim that the U.S. was going to be the world's largest oil producer, that we were going to produce more oil than Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And they still like to make that claim. And I went and looked at it and said, well, hang on. No, no, we're not. We still aren't. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's look, nobody can doubt that the shale revolution delivered these huge incremental gains in production and so on. But you're absolutely right. We're not talking about the same kind of oil necessarily. And actually, that's as it should be or as one would hope in the global market, because there are different needs and no country, I guess in a classical economic sense as well, no country should just be trying to become an autarky. As you said, no country can become an island in the oil market. So it's, in a way, it's helpful. You know, I don't think we could say it'd be better if the US produced a bunch of bitumen or produced more oil of the same grade as, I don't know, Iranian crude or something. Right. It produces what it produces and the volumes are still important. It is wrong to think that those volumes are all the same or that they automatically mean the same thing everywhere. I mean, it's as I say, it's a bit of a rabbit hole and it's a very difficult one to explain to non-experts, right. I think. But oil differences do matter. Yes, absolutely. And I guess I would maybe just try to simplify it by saying that the other 40% that the U.S. produces that is not crude is stuff like natural gas liquids and biofuels and refinery gains and all these other categories, Mm -hmm. which, as you say, are all useful things for various purposes, but they're not Mm -hmm. crude oil. And more importantly, they're not 
the same energy equivalent. They're not, what's mm-hmm. the number, 5.8 million BTU per barrel or something like that? Mm-hmm. So yep. that matters too. All right, well, yep. in the heyday, and, and the reason I make this point, and I don't mean to be pedantic about it, but the reason I make this point is because I'm pushing back very deliberately on these marketing claims that the U.S. fracking industry has made. And in the heyday of the tight oil boom, in the 2011 to 2014 period especially, the frackers producing the tight oil and their partners in the banking industry, most notably Ed Morris at Citigroup, who was on the television like every day, sold us this big story about it in order to persuade investors to keep pouring money into the sector in pursuit of growth, in pursuit of higher and higher production, because they weren't really cash flow positive and they weren't delivering returns to investors yet. And in that story, fracking was going to make the United States energy independent. It was going to displace OPEC as the world's swing producer. It was going to put the U.S. in control of global oil prices instead of the cartel. It was going to upend geopolitics forever and on and on. I mean, they made all of these outrageous claims. And this energy independence claim was always nonsense. And people like me wrote article after article trying to debunk it back then. (laughs) Listeners can find a whole mess of them that I've linked into the show notes here, but it doesn't matter. It didn't matter then. The money just kept on coming while oil prices remained elevated above $100 a barrel. And as we can see from the data that you just shared, it still is. The U.S. still consumes about 20 million barrels a day, but produces less than two-thirds of that. So we're not precisely energy independent now, nor would we ever be. But the shale revolution did deliver a lot of actual benefits to the world, didn't it? It did. I don't want to be the salesperson for this industry, but it did, whether you call it crude oil or, or call it NGLs or whatever, it, it produced a lot more energy that was used in some way or another around the world. And in the course of a very short period of time by oil industry standards, the volumes were significant. So there wasn't really much shale oil at all until about, what, 2008, I guess, 2007. But the real growth happened between 2010, 2011, until 2019, with the big dip in the middle of around 2014. And that more than doubled the production of these barrels, again, depending on what you're referring to when you talk about these barrels, but it more than doubled the production. And in a political sense, and I guess this is where I'm really at home because I've covered oil politics for a long time. In a political sense, the illusion at least was that the US was now freeing its own hands in the Middle East, could pursue sanctions on countries like Iran and Venezuela with a degree of market impunity, if you like, not fearing an oil price spike. It was able to provide eventually more oil to the global market and cool price spikes when the Arab Spring happened. It was something of a of a swing supplier. I think that's a fairly loaded term, and I'm not sure I endorse it so much, but it was something of a swing supplier at times when the market threatened to go to price oil even higher because of fears of shortages and so on. And you could also argue, as many shale boosters do, that at least on the natural gas side, it helped displace more carbon-intensive coal in power generation and US emissions have come down a bit because of that. So you know, it did have a lot of these benefits, some unquestionable, some debatable, but it had benefits. It made some people in the shale patch very wealthy as well. It generated a lot of income in terms of job creation and GDP growth for a few of the economies for a while. 
until the oil price sank a couple of times during the shale revolution years. It did. It was one of the most impressive events in recent economic history, really. And it did have global ramifications. It was an extraordinary period. And what we argue in the piece is that shale isn't about to go away. The production isn't about to plummet steeply or disappear. It's not going to turn into the North Sea in the next three years or something. It's a very, very fast declining oil province. That's not what we're arguing at all. It's that the era when it was just a fast growing, when production would overwhelm global balances, when it was a threat to the global oil price and so on, those years are gone. Shale has reached its peak or is near to its peak. It's not going to be the growth engine that it was. It's entering a different phase. And there are lots of reasons for that. But this idea that it could do the same thing again that it did between 2010 and 2019, that's not very plausible. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The bills are starting to come due for the various subsidy and bailout packages that European countries launched last year to secure energy supplies and cushion customers from price spikes, as we discussed in detail in episode 183 on the global energy crisis. And the total so far is a doozy roughly $1 trillion, according to Bloomberg calculations. The top spender was Germany, with 264 billion euros, or 7.4% of its GDP. The rest of the top six were the UK, with 97 billion euros, Italy, with 91 billion, France, with 69 billion, Netherlands, with 44 billion, and Spain, with 39 billion. All of those sums were equivalent to between roughly 3 and 5% of each country's GDP. The sheer size of the bill will make it difficult for governments to manage the crisis going forward, with various economies teetering on the edge of recession, if not already in it, interest rates still rising, and the capacity for additional borrowing getting tapped out. About half of the EU's member states already have more debt than allowed under the bloc's limit of 60% of GDP. But the energy crisis is still in its early days, the Bloomberg News staff point out. 
European countries will have to refill their gas reserves for next winter with little to no deliveries from Russia, intensifying competition for tankers of LNG. Even with additional capacity coming online to import LNG, the market is expected to remain tight and gas prices to remain elevated until 2026, when additional production capacity from the U.S. to Qatar becomes available. Demand for gas this winter has been below the recent historical averages, thanks to unusually mild weather. But the race is already on to refill gas inventories before next winter, and Chinese demand is expected to pose stiffer competition for available LNG cargoes now that Beijing has eased COVID restrictions. Chinese gas imports are likely to be 7% higher in 2023 than in 2022. Other Asian countries are also moving to procure more gas. Japan, the world's top importer of LNG in 2022, is even considering setting up a strategic storage reserve, possibly with government-subsidized purchases. Meanwhile, in late December, the UK government had to fork out another £4.5 billion to help Octopus Energy acquire failed electricity supplier Bulb, whose 1.5 million customers needed a new supplier. Bulb was placed in special administration in November 2021 after failing to manage surging wholesale energy prices, raise external funding, or find a buyer. In any event, the solutions to the ongoing crisis remain the same. As Veronica Grimm, an energy advisor to the German government, put it, quote, the biggest task out of the crisis is to make the energy transition happen. We have to massively expand renewables, end quote. Item two, the main pathway to reducing European demand for Russian gas, as we detailed in episode 171 last year, is deploying heat pumps millions of them, to displace gas-fired boilers. But as we cautioned in that discussion, it takes time to scale up such an industry, both to manufacture them and to train up an army of contractors. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.